Amen. All right, well, we're there in Job, chapter number 27. And, of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been making our way through the book of Job, one chapter a week, uh, learning from this uh, book. And if you remember, as we've been studying the book of Job, we've noticed that most of the book of Job is a conversation between Job and his three friends, Zophar, the Naamathite, Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite. And, of course, the, the conversation's been going on for chapters and chapters and chapters. His friends are... Done speaking at this point. Zophar spoke for the last time in chapter 20, Eliphaz in chapter 22, and Bildad in chapter 25. However, uh, although Job's friends are done speaking, Job's not done with them. He's uh, pretty much making his conclusion, and he's been uh, started his speech in the last chapter and continues in this chapter, and will go on for a couple of more, few more chapters after that. And we notice there in verse number one, the Bible says this, Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, and if you're taking notes tonight, I encourage you to take some notes on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some things. I, uh, this chapter, I've outlined it in three different uh, sections. And the first one, if you want to jot this down, is we see the irritation of Job. We see the irritation of Job. In verse two, it says, notice what Job says. He says, As God liveth, he says this, Who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty who hath vexed my soul. When we get to Job 27, and this has been a little bit of the theme throughout the book, we see that Job feels like God is not being fair with him. He says that he hath, he says in verse 2, as God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment. What that means is that Job is saying, God took away or God has not allowed me to have my day in court. He says, I should have a day when I could be judged or where judgment could be given to see whether I've done something that deserves all these things that have happened to me. But he says, God has taken away my judgment. God has not allowed me to be properly judged. And Job says that he feels like it's not fair what's happening to him. And this is something that's a common feeling amongst, uh, amongst uh, people when we're going through trials and tribulations that we feel like what we're doing or what we're going through, is, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not just. So Job feels like God's not being fair with him. He's taken away my judgment. But not only that, Job also feels that God is putting him in distress. Notice the last part of verse 2 there. He says, and the Almighty who hath vexed my soul. The word vexed or vex means to irritate or to distress. It means to uh, annoy. It means to uh, bother. And here Job is telling us that it is God who hath taken away my judgment. And he says, it is the Almighty who hath vexed my soul. And here's a thought regarding problems in life. You know, we often talk about problems in life. But here's a valid thought that I think all of us need to realize and come to terms with, and it is this, that sometimes it is God himself who is the source of our trouble. Sometimes when we're going through troubles and when we're going through trials and when we're going through difficult times, like Job, we might say, as God liveth who hath taken away my judgment and the Almighty who hath vexed my soul. See, the truth is this, that sometimes it's, it's, it's God who's the source 
of our issues in life, our troubles in life. Keep your place there in Job 27. That's obviously our text for tonight. Go with me, if you would, to uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. If you flip over from the book of Job to Psalm 119, look at verse number 71. We're going to leave Psalm 119 and come right back to it. So if you want to keep your finger there, that might be a good idea. Psalm 119. Notice what the psalmist says, Psalm 119 and verse 71. He says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Now, that's not normally what you and I would say. (laughs) In fact, we would say the opposite. We'd say, this is a bad thing I'm going through, being afflicted. Having, you know, Job had all sorts of issues, and uh, pick, pick the one you want. Having career issues, having financial issues, having health issues, having marital issues, having uh, uh, relational issues, where his friends have stabbed him in the back, and the fact that he's lost his children. Uh, Job says, God is the source of this. It is God who has taken away my judgment. It is the Almighty who has vexed my soul. Here the psalmist says this. He says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. You know that you don't learn anything and you don't grow and mature in in e- the ease of life, Amen. in the comfort of life, when things are just easy and going well, that doesn't make you a better person. In fact, when things are going well in life, when, when, when things are easy, when things are comfortable in life, we have the tendency to get backslidden. We have the tendency to wander away from God. And sometimes it is God, and I'm not saying that that's what happened to Job. We know that's not the case. But we know this, that whenever God uh, allows affliction into our lives, whatever the reason is, it's always, uh, uh, we know this to be true, that God allowed it. It was filtered through God. And we can say this, it is good for me that I've been afflicted. It is in the times of trials. Is it in the times of tension? It is in the times of discomfort that we really grow and learn and mature and learn to trust in God and rely on God. Amen. Here he says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might, notice he says, that I might learn thy statutes. It's funny how, you know, a pastor could get up and preach week after week after week, year after year after year, and, and, and preach sermons and preach ideas and preach concepts and applications, and they just go over people's heads, just, you know, just blank stare like a deer in the headlights. But as soon as they start going through something, you preach the exact same thing, and it's like, whoa, I get it. Whoa, I, that applies to me. Whoa, I can take comfort in that. You know, the psalmist said, it's good for me that I have been afflicted. He said, why? That I might learn thy statutes, that I might draw close to God, that I might actually take time to read the Bible, that I might actually take time to, to listen to the preaching, that I might actually uh, draw clo- uh, close to the, to the Lord. Notice verse 75, same chapter. He says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, notice these words, and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. So here's a thought regarding problems. Here's a thought regarding trials. Here's a thought regarding troubles. Here's a thought regarding vexation, irritations, annoyances. A thought regarding problems is this, that sometimes it is God himself who is the source of our trouble. And when we understand that and we can say that thou in thy faithfulness has afflicted me, then we can say that it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Keep your finger right there in Psalm 119. Go back to Job 27. Job chapter 27. So we begin this chapter with a thought on regarding problems. And the thought regarding problems is this, that 
Sometimes it is God who is the source of our troubles. Here's a thought regarding perspective. Notice verse 3. All the while, this is Job speaking. Now keep in mind, Job just got done saying, God has taken away my justice, my judgment. God's not fair. God, the Almighty, is vexing me. God is the source of my problems, my irritation. Then he says this, All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Now I'm going to connect those thoughts and, 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 and give you the context and show you exactly what it is that Job is saying. But I want you to notice that in the next verse he makes a reference to the fact that while... While God is vexing him, while God is afflicting him, he says, all the while, he says, all that while, my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. And here's what Job is saying. Job is saying that God created me. And here's a thought for you, because I gave you a thought regarding problems. What is it? The thought regarding problems is this, that sometimes the source of your problems is God. And when our faithful God allows affliction in our lives, we can say it is good that I have been afflicted because we know that he's doing a good work in us. But here's a thought regarding perspective. Always it is God himself who is the source of our life and breath. Always, sometimes God is the source of our problems, but it's always God who is the source of our life who is the source of our breath. So when God is the source of our problems, he's also at the same time the source of our breath. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Here's the idea. God created me. God created you. Therefore, he can do whatever he wants with you. No matter what God has done, please understand this. Go to Acts if you would. Keep your place in Job. We're going to go back to Psalm 119 in a minute. Go to Acts 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Think about this. No matter what God has done, or what you perceive that God has done. Are you listening to me? No matter what God has done to you, or you perceive that God has done to you, remember that it is that same God that holds your breath in His hand. It is that same God that has created you. It is that same God that allowed you to wake up this morning. It is that same God that allowed His breath in you this morning. Acts 17, verse 24, the Bible says this, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. This is, of course, the Apostle Paul preaching on Mars Hill. Notice verse 25, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything. Notice the last part of verse 25, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God gave you life. God gave you your job. God gave you your health. God gave you your children. God gave you your friends. God gave you everything. And here's the point. If God gave it to you, God can take it away. And he doesn't have to answer to you. See, we often, we want this explanation from God. God, you owe me an explanation. And it's time that we as Christians realize that one of the main ideas of the book of Job is that God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe you the things he's given you, and he dead sure doesn't owe you an explanation when he takes them from you. God allowed you to wake up this morning. Look, if you woke up this morning, that's enough to say this is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. 
Go back to Psalm 119. See, see Job gives us this, this, this idea, this thought on problems, this, this idea on pro- regarding problems. And the thought regarding problem, oh Christian, is this. You know, you say, well, I'm going through all these troubles. Well, you may want to consider the fact that God is the source of those troubles. And before you start complaining and cursing God, remember that it is that same God that gave you the ability to complain. They gave you the breath coming out of your mouth when you complain against him. Psalm 119, 71, we saw it. It says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Notice verse uh, 73. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Notice the context. Same idea as what Job is saying we see in Psalm 119. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right. Let me let you know a little secret. Anything that happens in your life, God allowed it. Anything that happens in your life was filtered through God. And God does everything right. Well, he's putting, he's afflicting me. He's irritating me. He's vexing me. I understand that. And I'm not trying to downplay whatever you may be going through, but I'm telling you this, God allowed it and God's always right. And before you take the breath that God gave you to curse God, before you take the breath that God gave you to complain against God, you may want to consider that God is simply doing a good work in you. Job says, if you go back to Job 27, look at verse 3. He says, all the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. He says, my lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Job has his ups and he has his downs. He has his times when he's saying, God's not fair, God's doing this to me. But sometimes he shines as well. And here's what Job says. He says, I'm not going to use the breath that God gave me to curse or criticize God. He says, God gave me the breath. Do you understand when you speak, breath, inspiration comes out of your mouth? All the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. He says, my lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. It's interesting that we as human beings will curse and criticize God with the same breath that God gave us. I mean, talk about hypocrisy. God gives you the ability to speak, and you use it to speak against God. And Job says, as long as I'm alive, I'm not going to curse or criticize God. And by the way, that's why Job won the challenge, Remember? That was the whole challenge about Job between God and the devil. That, 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 that Job would curse God, would criticize God because God did these things. And Job here, we see why he's the great man of patience, the Bible tells us, because he decided, he said, I'm not going to use the breath that God has given me to criticize God. He says, as long as I am alive, I'm not going to curse or criticize God. Job is committed to not sin against God and to not speak ill against God, even though he feels, even though he feels, don't miss this, even though he feels like God has wronged him. He feels like God has taken away his judgment, that God is not being fair. And he says, I'm not going to speak against God. And this is one of the main ideas of the book of Job. This is one of the reasons why God gave us the book of Job, to teach us, to teach us that Job was right when he said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And sometimes we go through trials. Sometimes God afflicts us. Sometimes God takes away jobs. Sometimes God takes away health. Sometimes God takes away these things. And, and many of you have gone through trials and tribulations and you've, you've kept your hope in God and God bless you for it. The Bible says, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. And then Job says this in verse 5. He says, God forbid that I should justify you. And here's what he's saying. Job, Job says, look, if I turn on God, then I'm going to prove you right. Because they've been accusing him of being a wicked, covetous uh, person. And Job says, look, if I turn on God, I'm just going to justify you. I'm going to, I'm going to prove you right. I'm going to prove you co- correct in the sense that I was only serving God for what God was giving me. And he says, I'm not going to turn against God. So I want you to notice, secondly, the first thing we see in this chapter is we see the irritation of Job. That God is a source of his trouble. But Job also understands that God is a source of his breath. That God is the source of his life. And as long as he lives, he's not going to turn against God. Then, we see the integrity of Job. I want you to notice Job's faithful perseverance. Notice verse 5 again. God forbid that I should justify you. This is Job speaking to his friends. He says, I'm not going to turn on God because as soon as I turn on God, all I'm going to do is prove all your wicked accusations against me right. Then he says this. Till I die. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. When you've lost it all, This is one thing you can keep, and it's your integrity. In fact, your integrity is the only thing that people cannot take from you. Your integrity is the only thing that no one can take from you. The integrity can only be given up by you. You're the only one that has the ability to give away your integrity. And Job here, he makes these powerful statements. He says, they've taken my riches They've taken my success. They've taken my wealth. They've taken my properties. They've taken my, my health. They, they, they've ruined my relationships. They've taken my children. He says, but till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. He says in verse 6, he says, my righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Job says, I will live righteously. I'm committed to do right. Job says, I, I'm, I'm going to continue to be faithful. And we see here Job's faithful perseverance. But I want you to notice, not only do we see his faithful perseverance, we also see Job's favorable position. Notice verse 7. He says, let mine enemies be as the wicked, and he that rises up against me as the unrighteous. Now I want you to notice what Job is doing here, what he's saying. His friends have been accusing him of being wicked and unrighteous. They keep saying that you're wicked, Job. You're unrighteous. You've not done right. And Job is saying, no. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not without sin, Job would say, but my integrity I hold fast. I, you know, I understand that God's doing this and God's doing this to me. I don't know why God's doing it to me, but uh, I have not sinned against God. He maintains his position of Innocence. Then he says there in verse 7, he says, Let mine enemies be as the wicked, and he that riseth up against me as the unrighteous.
righteous. And here's what Job is saying. Job is saying, let, let my, you know, you're accusing me of being wicked. So whatever was supposed to happen to me as a result of being wicked, let that happen to you. Because in the Old Testament law, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you accuse somebody of something that would cause them to be put to death, and it was found out that you were lying, then you would be put to death. And Job is saying, he said, let mine enemies be as the wicked. You're, you're accusing me of being wicked. He says, let mine enemies be as the wicked, and he that rises up against me as the unrighteous. And I'll just say this, this is a very good place to be when Job is saying, I will not, till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast. I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me. And then he says, let mine enemies be as the wicked. Here's what he's saying. He's, he, he, the idea is this. Let the bad guys be the bad guys. Do you understand that? You know, we as Christians are going to be falsely accused all the time. People are going to accuse us of of being in the ministry for the wrong motives, of stealing, of lying, of doing all sorts of things. And the world's going to do whatever the world's going to do. But we should be able, like Job, because Job is sitting here and he's having all these things happen to him. and, And they're all saying, you've done this, Job. You've done that, Job. And Job is saying, I haven't done it, you know, and let the bad guys be the bad guys. Look, it's a good place to be in life, even when everything's falling apart, to say, my conscience is cleared before God. You can say whatever you're going to say. You can write whatever you're going to write on social media. You can make whatever statements you want to make and whatever comments you want to say about me. But I know that I'm right with God. I have a conscience clear before God and before men. This is a very good place to be in life. When you've lost it all, but you can maintain your integrity. When you can continue to have a faithful perseverance and maintain a favorable position. Because... Let the wicked be the wicked. You know, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that there, there's, no, there, there, there's no rejoicing in when we suffer for our own sin. Only when we suffer for the cause of Christ can we rejoice. But if we suffer because of our own sinfulness, there's nothing of value there. So Job says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to admit to something that I haven't done. I'm going to have my faithful, I'm going to, I'm going to persevere faithfully. And he has this favorable position where he says, I'm not the bad guy here. And, and, you know, just one thought for you, and we'll move on to the next point here in a minute. But one thought about Job and something that we all need to understand is this, that your, in, in many ways, something we can learn about Job is this, that your Christian maturity and my Christian maturity can be measured by what it takes to stop us. The reason that we know that Job was a, was a perfect man, not perfect in the sense that you and I use the word like without sin or without error or corruption, but he was complete, he was whole, he was mature. Because Job, a lot came at Job and he did not quit. He stayed with it. He stuck with God. He persevered faithfully. See, your Christian maturity in many ways is measured by what it takes to stop you. I mean, what does it take to stop you from going soul winning? Somebody slamming a door in your face? Well, that just shows that your Christian maturity is very low. Because what it takes to stop you, what it takes to stop you will show us how big or mature or grown you are. See, Job stuck with it. He didn't understand it. He didn't even think it was fair. 
But he said, I'm not quitting on God. I've cast my lot with God. I'm sticking with God. What to God, we would have some Christians who would say, you know what, things are falling apart. It's all confusing. It doesn't make any sense. But I'm not quitting on God. I'm going to see this thing through. When it doesn't make sense, I'm going to show up to church. When it doesn't make sense, I'm going to read the Bible. When it doesn't make sense, I'm going to go soul winning. When it doesn't make sense, I'm going to tithe. When it doesn't make, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Because look, when you're confused and disoriented, when things are not going well, that's not the start, time to start making all sorts of bad, you'll, you'll make bad decisions. Job says, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even think God's fair. It feels like God is the source of my problems. But I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. Then we see, not only do we see the irritation of Job, not only do we see the integrity of Job, but then we see this imprecatory prayer of Job. Notice verse 8. Notice what he says. He says, For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he had gained when God taketh away his soul. Will God hear his cry when trouble cometh upon him? Will he delight in himself, in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? And Job goes on here to give this prayer where he's praying uh, a curse upon his enemies. And this is what we would refer to as an imprecatory prayer. The word imprecatory means to ask or to invoke evil upon someone. Uh, An imprecatory prayer is when we go to God and pray that God would invoke evil upon someone or curse someone. And this is what we see Job do. Notice verses 8 again. He says, for what is the hope of the hypocrite? He said, what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he hath gained... He lives in a nice house, drives a nice car, has nice clothes. But what's the hope of the hypocrite? When God takes away his soul, when God kills him, will God hear his cry when trouble cometh upon him? Here's what he's saying. Job prays that God would kill them, that he taketh away his soul. Then he prays and he's agreeing with God and uh, 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 hoping that God will not hear them. Will God hear his cry? Then he prays that God would not allow them to find delight in him. He says, will he delight himself? Job then prays that he would lose their opportunity to be saved. He says there at the verse, at the last part of verse 10, he says, will he always call upon God? And, and the question there is not, you know, will he continue to always call upon God because he's been calling upon God? We're talking about a wicked person here. He's saying, will he always have the opportunity to call upon God? And what Job is asking is, Job, Job is saying, take their opportunity to call upon God. He's play, praying this curse upon these people. Go, go, go back to Psalms, if you would. If you're there in Job, just flip over to Psalm 58. And this idea of imprecatory prayers is something that's found throughout Scripture. Not so long ago, we had a sermon. Pastor Thompson preached a whole sermon on it here. And I won't take a long time to talk about this, but I do. It's in the passage, so I want you to see it. Throughout the Bible, you find these imprecatory prayers. It's interesting to me that sometimes you talk about these things and it offends people. And all that shows is that you've not been reading the Bible. Because these prayers are all throughout 
the Bible, especially the book of Psalms. It's funny to me how like people often refer to Psalms as this peaceful book, and, and, and it definitely it has peaceful Psalms, Psalm 23 and all that. But it's got these you know, pretty hateful Psalms in it too. Psalm 58 and verse 3, notice what it says. Here's just an example of an imprecatory prayer. This is the psalmist David praying to God. He says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. And he's describing the wicked. Then in verse 6, he, he's asking God. He's praying and asking God, Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. I mean, think about that. Break out the great teeth of the Lord. Let them melt away as waters which run continually when he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrow. Let them be as cut in pieces, as a snail which melteth. Let every one of them pass away like the untimely birth of a woman that he may not see the sun. Here we have these imprecatory prayers throughout the book of of Psalms and we see that Job partakes in this idea of, of, of praying these imprecatory prayers. Go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Now, obviously, if you're not comfortable praying a prayer like this, don't. No, nothing says you have to pray imprecatory prayers. But we need to realize that this is a side of God. You know, God is love, but God is also wrath. God is also just. God is also judgment. Now let me just explain a couple things about these imprecatory prayers. First of all, we should not pray imprecatory prayers against our personal enemies. You know, if you think like, oh, I really hate my neighbor, you know, or I I really hate my coworker, I'm going to pray every day that God, you know, busts their teeth out and kills them. Well, here's the thing, If if they're your personal enemy, you're actually not right with God to do that. Because the Bible says, Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies. He said, bless them that curse them. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. So we're actually forbidden by God to curse our enemies. In fact, we're instructed to bless our enemies. So when somebody's your personal enemy, you're actually not allowed to pray an imprecatory prayer upon them. You're supposed to pray prayers of blessings upon them. You say, well, then, then who do we pray the imprecatory prayers on? There's two groups that we pray that you could pray these imprecatory prayers on. One that is probably obvious to most of you and one that maybe isn't. The first group is to the enemies of God. Now, not, not our personal enemies, but the enemies of the Lord. Psalm 139, look at verse 21. Psalm 139. I want you to look at the passage because these are passages that are sometimes controversial, but you know what? We love the Word of God, all of it. From Genesis to Revelation. Psalm 139, verse 21. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? Now notice, David isn't saying, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate me? In fact, if you remember, David is one of the great uh, pictures in the Bible about loving your enemy. Because if you remember, Saul, who was hunting David like a dog, hunting him like a flea, the words of David, 
David had the opportunity to kill Saul two different times, and he chose not to. He said, I will not lay my hand on God's anointed. And David is actually this beautiful picture of loving your enemy, of blessing them that curse you, of doing good to them that hate you, of praying for them which despitefully use you. So here David, he's not being a hypocrite. He's loved his enemies. But then he says this, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. And am not I grieve with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Now obviously when people are the enemies of God, they, the enemies of God like Haman often take their wrath out upon God's people. So we end up you know, hating them just as much as uh, they hate us. But we need to be clear in our mind that what gives us permission to to hate them, what gives us permission to pray these imprecatory prayers is not that they're our enemies, is that they're the enemies of God. And I will be very careful about just deciding that everybody who you personally doesn't, don't like, all of a sudden they're all the enemies of God. Because that's not true. There's lots of people out there that may not like you and they got nothing against God. It's, it's just you who are the problem. So here, David says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Then just, just for us to make sure, because people will try to say, like, well, David must have not been right with God when he wrote Psalm 139. Well, excuse me, this is the word of God. Amen. Holy men of God spake, the Bible says, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But just, just to... Take that away. He says this in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David just proves that he's right with God when he says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. So who who should we pray these imprecatory prayers for? If you're going to pray imprecatory prayers, you know, we should not pray them for our personal enemies because we should love our enemies, but we should only pray these imprecatory prayers for the enemies of God. The people who hate God. The people who are attacking God. And the people that, that really the only reason they're attacking us is because we are, we are a representation of God. So we, those are the people that we should pray these imprecatory prayers for. But there's another group. Go, go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Now, this first group about the people who hate God, you see that all throughout the Bible. If you're uh, familiar with the writings of Paul, you remember that Paul would often say about false prophets. He said, I delivered them unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Sometimes these imprecatory prayers are, play, are prayed in the way where they're being delivered up to Satan. We're, we're, we're asking God to allow Satan to destroy their lives. And again, we should not pray this for our own personal just enemies, somebody you don't like. Uh, this is supposed to be something that's prayed towards the enemies of the Lord. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, am I not and am I not grieved that those rise up against me? There's a second group that a version of the imprecatory prayer could be prayed for. And this is maybe a group that you've not thought of or maybe a little surprising to you. But it is for those who are saved and yet wayward or have gone away from the Lord. 
the Bible teaches that when there are Christians who have gone away from the Lord, there is a version of this imprecatory type prayer that can be prayed for them. Now, obviously, when we're praying for a saved person, we don't hate them. And they don't hate the Lord. So we might not be as descriptive, you know, knock out their teeth, God, and, you know, um, you know make them sleep with the fishes and all the, those types of things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, we have this passage on fornication. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5 says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that had done this deed. Here, Paul is referring to a young man, a saved young man in the church of Corinth, who's living in fornication, living a wicked life. Notice verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and, uh, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Notice what he says. He's asking the church to pray this. He says, I want you to pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a prayer, right? Don't we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? We we ask all these things in his name. That's why we end our prayer saying, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Or in the matchless name of Christ we pray, amen. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, he said, here's what you should be praying, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He says, pray for this young man that Satan would destroy his flesh, that Satan would destroy his body. You say, why? That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And the word saved there is not referring to spiritual salvation like going to heaven or hell. He's already saved, but what he's talking about is that his spiritual life would be saved. Do you know that your spiritual life is more important than your physical life? And here we have an example of a Christian that's just going off on the deep end of sin, and you have other mature Christians. And by the way, only a mature Christian would ever do this. Praying... God, would you destroy the life of that young man? God, would you allow Satan to destroy the life of that young lady? God, so-and-so, they've turned away from you. Would you do whatever you have to do to get them right with God? This is a version of the imprecatory prayers. It's not praying for reprobates, praying that they would go to hell and all those things. And I'll be honest with you, there have been times in my life when I've prayed these prayers for saved people. And I've always prayed them, Lord, do what you got to do and do it as gently as possible. Don't go any further than you have to do, Lord. You know how far you can take it, but do what you've got to do. 
when some lady is committing adultery, when some guy is committing adultery, when people are, are just going off the rails in sin and destroying their testimony and destroying their lives and destroying. You better believe you have a pastor. Let me introduce you uh, to, to myself. I'm a pastor. Some of you think I'm a joke up here, but I actually believe what I say. And you better believe that I get down on my knees and I pray for people by name and I say, Lord, deliver them unto Satan. Do what you got to do in their lives. Deliver them unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a version of the imprecatory prayers. And some of you are like, this is crazy, I've never... Uh, Let me introduce you to the real Christian life. You're not going to get this on TBN. Job 27, if you would. Job 27. The interesting thing is that Job kind of anticipates this. He just gets done with this imprecatory prayer, and he kind of anticipates the fact that people are going to say, that's not very Christian. So here's what he says in verse 11. I will teach you by the hand of God. That which is with the Almighty will I not conceal. Behold, all ye yourselves have seen it. Why then are ye thus altogether vain? Job says, let me me introduce you to the God of the Bible. I will teach you by the hand of God. Then in verses 13 through the rest of the chapter, verse 23, in, 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 in the previous verses we see the prayer of the wicked, and then in verses 13 through 23, we see the portion of the wicked. It's a continuation of the imprecatory prayer, but he's just describing how the end of these wicked people. Notice verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man with God. And in some ways, it kind of feels like Job is just beating a dead horse because this is a theme that's been talked a lot about in the book of Job. His friends have talked about it. Now Job's going to talk about it. The portion of the wicked man, it seems like each one of them wanted to kind of hit this. And you know, there is, there, there's, a ten, there's a temptation in me to say, we've already kind of dealt with this in the book of Job, so maybe I should just skip it or not give it a lot of time. But you know, what I realize is this, that if God just allows something to be repeated over and over and over in the Bible, then God must just want us to hear it. And maybe at the very least, it's good for these young people sitting in this auditorium to realize that the Bible tells us the end of these, all these wicked as hell celebrities that you want to magnify and you want to, you know, be starstruck with. God tells us how their their life's going to end. This is the portion of the wicked man with God. The heritage of oppressors which they shall receive of the Almighty. What, what, what's going what's gonna to happen? Uh, uh, Job 27 verse 14. If his children be multiplied, it is for the sword. Yeah, they, they might look like they have a nice big old family. You know, the Duggars or whatever. But if his children be multiplied, it's for the sword. And his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those that remain of him shall be buried in death. He says that their, their life is just going to be pursued by death. I mean, you know, you think of the Kennedys. Now, they might look like they're all rich and famous, but you know what? The, his children are multiplied, and it is to the sword. His offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those that remain of him shall be buried to death. 
It says, and his widow shall not weep. When a wicked man dies, nobody cares. His, his widows aren't weeping. His wife's not sad. Verse 16, though, he heap up silver as the dust and prepare raiment as the clay. Now, don't miss that. Though he heap up silver as the dust. He's got, he's heaping up, making big pound, piles of silver. He's got silver like you've got dust. That's what he's saying. And prepare raiment as the clay. Clay wasn't something easy to get a hold of. And, and, and this time, clothes was something difficult to have. Oftentimes, people would have one change of garment or two changes of garment. But they'd have a lot of clay-type things because clay's made out of mud. And he says, this guy, he prepares his raiment as clay. It's like he can, he can just buy things and get things. Notice verse 17. He may prepare it. But the just shall put it on, and the innocent shall divide the silver. He's not going to get to enjoy it. He says, look, he's not going to enjoy it when he dies and goes to hell. And in fact, it is the just and the innocent who are going to enjoy what's left over during the millennial reign of Christ. Notice verse 18. He buildeth his house as a moth. A moth is something that would corrupt that would deteriorate. And he's saying, look, nothing that the wicked man has is going to last. They're not going to be able to take any of it with them. And as a booth that the keeper maketh. The word booth is a biblical word that means tent. He says, you know that big old mansion, that big old house they have? It's like a tent. It's temporary. The rich man, and of course here the context is not just every rich man, it's the wicked rich man, the oppressor. The rich man shall lie down. You know that rich people die like poor people die? The rich man shall lie down, but he shall not be gathered. He opened his eyes, and he is not. He says, he says the rich man is going to die, but he's not going to be gathered. That's a phrase used throughout the Bible in reference to the fact that when somebody would die, people would gather together to mourn the life of that individual. And here's what he's saying. Look, you young people need to learn this. What he's saying, when you live your life for things, for money, for wealth, for clothes, for gadgets, he said, you're going to die like everyone else. You don't get to take it. And at the end of your life, your life will not have mattered. See, the, the, the truth is this. When you live for self, at the end, all you have is yourself. The rich man shall lie down, but he shall not be gathered. He said, it'd be better for you to live your life for others. Love others. Value others. Add value to others. So that when you die, people would line up to say, he invested in me. He loved me. She took care of me. He says in verse 20, terrors take hold of his of him as waters. You know how wicked, rich people live in fear? Constant fear. They're afraid that the stock market's going to crash. They're afraid that the dollar's going to crash. They're afraid that their job's going to disappear. They're afraid of this. They're afraid of that. You know who's not afraid that the stock market's going to crash? People who don't care about money. Terrors take hold on him as waters. A tempest stealeth him away in the night. Rich people stay up all night. Wicked rich people. 
They stay up all night worried and fretting about the, their, their finances and their money and this and that. You know, it, it, the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen. Maybe you don't have as much or have all the nice things when you uh, live a humble life for Christ. Amen. But at least you can have the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Amen. He says the east wind carrieth them away. And he departeth, and as a storm hurleth him out of his place. For God shall cast upon him and not spare. See, we look at these rich, wicked people, and we think, it's not fair. They, they, they live in comfort. They don't have troubles. But at the end, Job says, at the end, God shall cast upon him and not spare. When they die and go to hell, God's not going to spare. He would fain flee out of his hand. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. And Job ends this idea, this portion of the wicked man, with this thought saying, you guys keep telling me I'm a wicked person, but he says, I know the end of the wicked man. I know the portion of the wicked man. And he says, it's not worth it. So he says, I'd rather just hold on to my integrity, even if I lose everything in the process. I'd rather stand there, having lost it all, knowing that I'm right with God. Let's bow our heads in our word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this chapter, Job 27. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn from Job. We can learn from the irritation of Job. Sometimes we do feel like it is God himself who vexes us. That God himself is the source of our trouble. When we feel that way, let us remember that it is also God who gives us breath. Let us determine not to use our breath that's given by God to curse and criticize God. And then we see the integrity of Job. The fact that he is not going to quit, he's not going to give in. Help us to remember that our Christian maturity is measured by what it takes to stop us. And then we see the imprecatory prayer of Job. We see the truth. We see the truth of living a wicked lifestyle. And Lord, where those enemies of the Lord rise up against God, help us not to be afraid to pray those prayers of curses upon them. Help us never to blur the line between the enemies of the Lord and our personal enemies. Help us always to love our enemies and bless them that curse us. And Lord, every once in a while, sometimes, when a fellow believer decides to turn on God, we may have to, with a broken heart, pray that you would do whatever you need to do to get them right. Lord, help us to remember and realize that sin is not a joke. The Bible is real, God is real, and we will all stand before God. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take these things seriously. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.